Welcome to the Support Automation Show, a podcast by Capacity. Join us for conversations with leaders in customer or employee support who are using technology to answer questions, automate processes, and build innovative solutions to any business challenge. I'm your host, Justin Schmidt. Good morning, Christina. Where does this podcast find you? Hey, Justin. So I'm actually in uh, Northern Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. Lovely rainy day. Oh, uh, yeah. We've got a little bit of clouds here in St. Louis, so it might be related to, to what you have going over there. Christina, why don't we start by telling us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and kind of what led you to this stage in, in digital policy and, and some of the other uh, consulting work that you do? Well, I have this really kind of crazy background, and I always say that, and people go, oh, so does everybody else out there. Um, but my background is kind of, it, it really is weird because I ended up actually going to school. I got my MBA, was really excited as, you know, I don't know how old I was when I got out of grad school, like 24. And I landed this job as a project manager, right? And it sounded so glorious. I was like, wow, coming straight out of school and I'm going to manage things. Well, came to work my first day and I was told that I was actually going to be cutting up Photoshop files hmm. and I was going to write some cold fusion, you know, do some HTML. And so I went home and I cried because I didn't know what CGI uh, bin files were. <laughs> and um, I actually ended up doing a number of uh, gigs after that in terms of roles. I basically was a project manager that did lots of uh, kind of web masterish kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, for a while, I did um, business analysis gathering and processes. Uh, went through kind of a period where I did um, dev especially in the Java world. And I'm the worst developer. Don't hire me ever for that. And the interesting thing to me is that through all these incarnations, really, of, of consulting, what I realized is that we were doing kind of the crazy dance around digital. We were always putting either clients or companies, depending on what my role was at the time, at risk, right? It was either because, you know, I don't know, like once I brought the St. Jude website down for eight hours without a backup plan. I know, yeah, claim to fame, right? Or we would actually transfer, um, you know, like donation files without having them encrypted to the bank, just clear text, you know. Mm. And those are really cool things in the early days of digital. But what I noticed over time is that we were still doing these things, right? And I was like, mm. I think, you know, we should kind of grow up at some point. And I started focusing more on governance and then start to specialize really in digital policy. And all I do now is help organizations, large and small, balance out the risks and opportunities of digital and actually help them understand and be very deliberate about the risks that they're taking, the opportunities they're gaining, and creating policies so that everybody in the enterprise understands what they ought to do, what they should not do. And that way, I, you know, all of us can stay free and continue to do cool, innovative stuff. Yeah, it's very interesting because here on the Support Automation Show, usually the people I talk to are leaders in a specific support function, whether that be customer support or someone on the IT HR side. Um, what makes you unique and what makes me really excited about the conversation we're having today is that you operate in a domain that is one of those, it's, I don't want to say ancillary to support automation because it's actually very, very important, but it's not a, it's seen only when there's a problem, right? Like if a company doesn't have the right policies in place or, or security or whatever it is, and, and they've got AI automation and something goes wrong, right? So it's actually a, a foundational piece of the puzzle that business leaders need to be cognizant of when they're bringing something like automation into the business. 
So to to kick us off here, I always like to ask this of our guests first because it's it's an int- it's interesting how everyone defines it. When I say the word support automation, what what does that mean to you? Well, I go very broad. I go super broad, and I always say it's about having a piece of technology perform a job that a human used to do repetitively or could do, but instead we outsource it in order to get economies of scale. And I think to me, that's probably the broadest that I can go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the economies of scale really are what what drives value here. So, you know, you talked about your career in digital and the digital domain. And 10 years ago, five years ago, when, when we talked about digital, we didn't necessarily include AI, bots, automations that are, you know, usually when you think of workplace automation, sort of the first thing you think of is the robot arm on the car assembly line. But we're getting into things like robotic process automation, support automation, AI in the workplace. When you approach a client or a client approaches you rather, and they say, Christina, we're looking at doing XYZ with automation. What are the first couple things that that you tell them? And what are the first steps towards getting those um, policies and procedures in place that they're going to need to be successful? Great question. Um, So really, when I'm kind of working with clients, it starts usually, it comes from several different places. Either folks are really freaked out about risk, right? It's like, oh my Mm. gosh, we're going to do this thing. And they pretend like they've never heard of AI, for example, right? When it's like, we've been living with AI for a while. Um, so sometimes people kind of come from that place where it's like, oh gosh, you know, I don't want to get into regulatory or legal trouble. But sometimes folks actually come at me because their competitors are doing something. Hmm. And so they're looking at automation or they're looking at new tool sets and they're actually looking at it for an opportunity. So it's actually not going to create risk. It's something that's going to give them either economies of scale or it's going to give them some type of um some type of advantage, really competitive advantage in the industry. And so when I start talking to folks, it's always from a business perspective, like, what are you really trying to achieve? What is it that you're trying to get done? And from there, the conversation unfolds into what are the things that are the unforeseen risks, right? The things that we haven't thought about, whether it's legal and regulatory, or if it's, you know, process issues, people change management, right? Because not a lot of people tend to be happy about automation. Mm. Um, So we look at that aspect. And then we talk about the opportunity. Like, why are we doing this? What is the benefit? How are we going to actually understand and measure that? Have we thought about all of the benefits that we've actually been thinking about? If we do this, are there other unforeseen secondary benefits to the organization? And so that's really where the conversation always starts because that's really the root of digital policies. And so before we even start talking about a very specific technology, it's always like, why are you even doing this? Like, what's the purpose? What's the goal? Why are you doing it? And who is it going to help? Or you know, is it something that you're doing as an investment long-term, right? Because some companies may not realize any kind of benefit for mm-hmm. the immediate uh, immediacy, if you will, but down the road, they're going to realize some kind of benefit. And so sometimes it's just a matter of seeding things as well, which is fine, but the type of risks and opportunities that we see with immediate adoption are quite different than if you're seeding something. And so very important to have that foundational conversation. Right. On your, on your, site, which um, I recommend everyone go to kpodnar.com. You've got this really great resource on the subtitles, which digital policies, and we can go over each policy, why it's needed, key points, and then the the type and and how it's in relation to different industries and stuff. 
And one thing that you touch on in the uh, algorithm formatting and management sort of AI policy mm -hmm. page that, that I think is really key here is bias. How does policy impact bias? So bias, if you can net it out at the end of the day, bias is a risk, right? And so it's a risk. It could also be an opportunity. Right. If you're biased in certain ways, it could be an opportunity for your business. For example, I'm biased in terms of competitive pricing. Right. And I might be highly sensitive to competitive pricing. And so it could actually drive me to be more competitive against a competitor. Um, bias from the other side may not be good in terms of we have diversity in global markets. I might not understand, for example, that if I'm going to be uh, speaking tomorrow morning in the UAE, that I need to probably cover my head up, right, and be appropriate for my surroundings. And so I wouldn't know that unless somebody from that area told me, or maybe I, I did some research and understood that. So policies really help to cue individuals into what type of things to think about when we're talking about AI, right? It's the type of things that you should do right in order to kill you you're not always going to know a risk you're not always going to know an opportunity but the question when we're in ai when we're looking at biases what are the things that should be cueing us to think differently right so that when we start something for example <clears throat> excuse me if we're just starting a new project and we're going to be thinking about a new technology you might think about like hey you know is this everybody that should be in the room you know, are we missing a perspective here? Um, you know, are we thinking about it in terms of, you know, a three-year life cycle? Is this something that's going to be around for a longer time than that? What do we expect the future to be? So it's really about a series of scenarios and running through what ifs, if you will, to really consider the things that you haven't considered. And so it's mm. almost like playing devil's advocate and kind of troubleshooting at the same time. And I love that. That's like the biggest fun of our you know project team startup when we do things together with clients it's like what are the crazy things nobody's thought about yet like think the craziest you possibly can be as innovative as you can think about the crazy use case the edge case that nobody's really thought about yet so it's almost like being a teenager again and thinking about how you could get yourself into trouble and uh and kind of going through that process and those are the things really that net out policies because mm -hmm. you're not going to create policies around everything right? You're going to actually have policies that cue you into what to do or what to think about. And then out of that risk opportunity scenario, you're going to think about what are the risks that you really want to worry about. And not everything is worth worrying about always, right? So a lot of organizations have things like, you know, um, an algorithm, um, you know, bias. Well, what does that really mean in your context? Again, it depends right. on who you are, where you're operating, how you're operating, and thinking through the use cases through and through to see where does that come in? What does bias mean in that context? And what are maybe the type of biases that you haven't even thought about yet, right? Because everybody's talking about ethics and bias, but those are their definitions. What is yours? Right. And in the AI space, when people say bias, excuse me, bias, it's me being a teenager, my voice is cracking like <laughs> it. It's been a long time since I've been a teenager, but here we are. Um, You're getting younger. <laughs> getting younger every day. The bias question is an interesting one because... Oftentimes in sort of professional settings, when we think of bias or, or business, we think of bias. We think of an algorithm that a uh, classic example is an AI that scans resumes and there's some sort of um, gender or demographic bias that would come through and the, the AI is, is disproportionately disqualifying people of color, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but there's, there's other more 
subtle and maybe to your point, like the things you're not thinking of. And one thing that has come up a couple times on this show and it's a conversation we've had with clients and stuff too, is the voice of your, let's take a very simple automation AI, the voice of your chatbot. If you're going to be using language and, you know, if you want to put jokes or cultural references or something in there, you may be alienating customers. You may be creating um, uh, hard to understand interactions or, or points to get lost, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And you're right. You kind of have to really step back and really think about the broader implications of everything here. Um, it's fascinating when you go into an organization, do you typically have these discussions with leadership and then empower them to um, communicate that downward? Or are you coming in and sort of working kind of individual stakeholders plus leadership and bringing everybody together? Because I think it's very important when companies go down the support automation journey and start bringing automation in the executives, the frontline, the customers, everybody sort of understands what's going on here. I'm just kind of curious what the approach is from a top down versus bottoms up. Um, So I actually tend to do top down and bottoms up and wide all at the same time, which probably sounds somewhat chaotic, but it ends up actually being more comprehensive. And so you definitely need your leadership to actually be involved. You need to understand that business strategy and that usually is happening at the top, but you also need to actually do a bottom up because those are usually the people who actually know what's happening. I mean, I've never met an executive that can really personify for me, for example, the actual consumer, right? The person who's actually calling the call center. And yet if I go to the call center, they're like, oh, I'm all over this. Let me tell you what's happening here. But to me, it's always fascinating because I also like to go to HR and I like to go to procurement. And I talk to all these folks that are considered sort of traditionally outliers. And people are like, oh, why do we need HR here? Well, it's like, well, you know, don't you have people that are training your chatbot? And so why would you not talk to HR? You know, they have a role. It might be a very marginal one. It might not be a very active one, but, you know, they have a role. And so I tend to go to pretty much everybody, understand what they do, how they do, how they might actually adopt the technology we're talking about, how they might impact it. Um, And for example, kind of going back to the notion of bias, you know, I might talk to everybody about bias, like how do they interpret bias? What is a bias? Have they thought about things? Um, You know, recently I was working with a client that had a call center um, and they were thinking about bias in terms of the call center. And one of the questions that I had, and it's funny that you say chatbot, because they brought up the notion of like, well, if we had chatbots, we could just like serve more people. And I'm like, well, yeah, but let's kind of dial it back and even see, is that the right channel? to ask some of these questions right. in because we're biased. I mean, just because it's you know convenient for us, we're biased towards ourselves. It's not necessarily about the end user. You know, if I'm going to ask about sexual orientation or marital status or age, is that really a channel that's most comfortable to a user to interact with over chatbot? Or is it better that there's a human asking that? Or conversely, maybe we don't want a human asking that on, you know, on a phone call, we want a chatbot to be asking that on our website, you know, it depends on the client. But I think being aware of that and then starting to break down, you know, where are some of the biases? Different folks have different perspectives. A great example, again, kind of going back to a call center um, group that I was talking with, they weren't really thinking about bias towards people who call frequently. Hmm. And some of the HR folks said like, well, well, you know, 
yes, the call volume has been much, much higher. And what we're hearing from employees is frustration around certain types of things. And when we analyze the trends, it seems like older customers were calling more frequently with a specific type of problem. Right. And so it's fascinating because how the organization was dealing with that demographic was biased in a way. Right. They were actually trying to decrease phone time and increase their adoption of other channels when in reality, probably higher customer satisfaction was going to come from servicing those individuals via phone calls or voice and human interactions. And so great example of bias ageism, right, right. in the wrong yeah. direction by the organization. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And what I like about that is that it is a new perspective on one of the common themes in support automation of the low level repetitive tasks. Like that's always the first thing people point to when you want to bring automation into an organization. And, and you should, that's, that's the low hanging fruit, right? But one of the secondary effects of this is, is that you create an opportunity and I want to, I want to pin the word opportunity there to allow your best people to spend the most valuable time on the most important tasks or to allow, let's go, use the call center example. If you, if you automate the simple stuff and make it easy to connect to a human when you need to, you can, you can facilitate these, this, this sort of customer brand interaction that requires a phone call and, and the agent isn't, you know, worn out because they've answered the same question 300 times in a row. You're, you're, you, you know, they're, they're fresher because again, the repetition's taken out. People are freed up to do their best tasks. And from a customer perspective, like you're having a good interaction with the person on the other end of the phone, therefore a good interaction with the brand. But what I loved about what you said there was that you looked at it from a, you, you kind of painted that picture from a top-down perspective of like the most important interactions are occurring over the phone. So think about the channels when you bring automation in. That was, that was, that was very interesting. When you, when you look across industries and you're in a very specific um, and interesting position for this, because you, in a consulting business, you sort of work across, you know, across the gamut of, of everything from healthcare to government to retail, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular industry or market segment where youth would especially caution leaders looking into automating some portion of their support function or, or back office, whatever it is. Is there a particular industry that has particular challenges that you think are, are um, of note? Um, no, I think that every, every industry, every vertical has something that they need to consider, right? When you started asking me that question, my head immediately popped to the NGO sector and the humanitarian crisis, for example, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, we obviously don't want to automate certain aspects of humanitarianism because there's risk. There's risks of things like hacking and data leaks and right. things that actually would endanger people's lives. So the value is, you know, out the roof, but you know what? You have that in pharma as well, right? We could automate some tasks that would actually cause issues from a pharma perspective and, and cause people's health and life. Um, you know, automation in, in the automotive industry as well. I mean, you know, so everybody has a risk. The question is, 
what does that risk look like in your organization? And for some, it's going to be the loss of life. For others, it's going to be the loss of a 300-year-old brand and bankruptcy right. of the company. And another one, it might be, you know, the welfare of, you know, their employees. And so I, I don't think so. I, I honestly don't think so. I think it's just a matter of pivoting and understanding what's unique about you, where are the dangers, where are the opportunities? Yeah, yeah. There's There's certainly something to be said of while it may at first blush seem like, oh, and, you know, humanitarian, you know, I think of what's, what, what you know, the, the humanitarian issues that are, that are going to arise in Afghanistan now, for example, mm-hmm. um, like those are obviously like big thorny issues that we need to, you know, deal with and deal with properly and ethically. Um, but, that doesn't mean that the data sharing or data breach possibility of something like, you know, medicate, you know, filling your prescriptions online or something, right? Like, like that's, those are also opportunities for data to be used the wrong way or hacking or, or, or some sort of, you know, untoward um, behavior. They're, they're both important. Right. And, and, you're, you're exactly right. When you look at the sort of broader picture of the proliferation of AI and automation and like the sort of digital 3.0 or whatever that we're, that we're seeing with all of this, obviously government bodies are, are starting to step in and do things, right? Like we've had mm-hmm. GDPR, um, What's the, the California law? CC, CCPA. CCPA, yeah. Those are recent reactions to digital policy or digital risks that have been going on for a long time with you know email and data compliance. But like AI and automation sort of has a whole other basket of issues that we haven't legislated into, you know, fairness or anything yet. So really long-winded way of asking, um, what do you see from a public policy perspective maybe coming down the, the pipe that that business leaders should be aware of or be thinking about? So that's a great question. And, and it's interesting how every regulatory body, I don't care where you're located in the world, but every single regulatory body is behind the curve on this. Um, and it's very unique, right? It, So to me, when I kind of look at what should people be thinking about, obviously, you know, privacy, data, um, protectionism is like of individuals um, is the number one area by far. And it's interesting because people kind of go like, oh, GDPR, you know, which was um, enacted and came into force on uh, May 25th of 2018. Like you said, you have CCPA, you have CPA in Colorado. Those are coming up. They sound new because they've Mm -hmm. been coming up since 2018. It's interesting. South Africa had their PAPIA um, created in 2013, right? So, you know, people have been thinking about that for a while. It just, it takes a really long time for regulations to catch up. The areas that I see that are now on the cusp of that are things like trademarks, innovation, uh, protection of your intellectual property, right? So we just saw recently a case in South Africa, which was actually the first case um, that was granted a patent for technology that was invented by an algorithm. So it was actually created Mm. via AI rather than by a human. And we had a case in Australia that was actually overturned 
um, or was actually denied and it was just recently overturned to allow the same thing granting of a patent. So I think what's really on the verge and should be on the mind of every business individual out there is how is this paradigm shifting in areas that are traditional and almost disrupting them? And what will that do to my business, right? So Mm. the patents, the innovations, uh, intellectual property protection are just a prime example for competitive areas um, or verticals that are competitive or for profit in nature. There's areas, obviously, like NGOs, nonprofits that are also going to be disrupted in different ways, right? So like think about like deep fakes in humanitarianism, right? What happens if somebody actually enacts um, an individual who's fleeing in their country or they're seeking political assignment? What does that look like? So there's a lot of implications across the board. And I think what is happening is that leaders are so busy keeping the day jobs kind of going and the lights on, if you will. They're focused on things that are very known to them, like business decisions, investments, fundings, right? They're all about keeping their organizations afloat, but they're not having these deeper conversations around what does this really mean to my business? What does it mean to my industry? And I think that's probably one of the biggest risks today. Yeah, that story and AI creating something that could be patented. Hmm? That is a ball of wax, right? I mean, yeah, it's fascinating. It's like what happens when we have like basically derived properties because now you no longer have a human, right? It's actually a machine creating something and it's a derivative. And the problem isn't the machine or the logic or the thing that's being created. The problem Mm -hmm. is that we are thinking about copyrights and trademarks in very outdated ways. Yeah, it's, it's a, it reminds me of one of the classic AI stories or examples that just personally it always troubles me as, as someone who is a hobbyist musician at, at what point is like the next great album going to be released by an ai right and like art like one of the last you know things we have as humans it, it being being taken over by 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 technology that's that's you know maybe dystopian and 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 sort of interesting to think about but patents and you know there are issues with that that extend beyond your sort of gut reaction to it right like there's there's precedent from legal perspective there's ip ownership and and all the different you know way like we 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 can barely agree as a global society on what ip ownership really is now Mm -hmm throwing the fact that you've got like, well, my IP made its own IP, right? In this jurisdiction, which maybe is different in that one. Do you see a world where there could perhaps be disclosure in AI that it is an AI before it interacts with somebody? So you, you know, you call Domino's in a few years and 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 an AI answers the phone and it's virtually indistinguishable from a human. Or do you think we as consumers are going to kind of continue to live mostly ignorant of this? No, I don't think that we're going to be ignorant. I don't think we can be ignorant. And I think that there will need to be transparency and visibility into that. I think if nothing else, from a kind of consumer trust perspective, I don't know if you remember um, a few years ago, I think it was AT&T that ended up actually introducing their chatbot. And, you know, we started doing crazy things like asking it questions like, hey, I'm going to Italy. You know, do you eat gelato? What is your favorite type of gelato? And this thing would just like blow up, right? Right. It was very obvious that it was a machine. But I remember actually how annoyed people were when they thought, you know, found out that it was a machine. And so I think you're going to see the same thing when you start interacting 
with a machine that sounds, looks, feels like a human. And you can't tell the difference because we're kind of almost there today in some aspects, right? With certain things. And so, you know, I think that for most organizations, from a pure liability perspective and the risk of what could happen if a consumer found out, they will want to be transparent right? They'll want to be transparent because that's a good thing. That's where if you know that this is not Christina, that I'm actually, you know, a bot that's speaking on behalf of Christina and organization, Mm. right? That's a lot easier to interact with. I've set your expectation. If I get hacked and you find out after the fact, you won't be as upset as you will be if it ends up on the front page of the New York Times that I was hacked and all that data you gave me is now out somewhere on the dark web. So I think that organizations will be sort of forced into it by consumer expectations. That's one point, as well as the type of technologies that we were talking about, right? Because Mm. it's no longer just about I'm picking up the phone and I'm talking to someone who sounds like Justin, but it might not be Justin. It's about the fact that we're on the verge of, of kind of being in these virtual worlds. And what happens when I'm in a virtual world? How do I know it's an actual human I'm interacting with? Yeah. What does that mean from a child safety perspective? Do I really want my child interacting with a machine? Do I want them interacting with a human? A machine might be safer, right? But it's all these questions um, that I think are coming up. And I think we will have to have disclosure between what is quote unquote human versus what is machine. Right. I think of the um, Google voice assistant demo they did a few years ago when they um, called the hair salon or the or the restaurant or whatever. I think it was a restaurant to book a table. And, you know, it was a it was a it was a pretty great wow moment. I don't know how much they've actually done with that technology, but it was it was, it was one of those great um Big companies do something flashy presenting AI moments. Mm-hmm. Um, yesterday we had uh, Tesla with their with their AI and their robot, and it was interesting. Like Elon, you know, he was. It was funny. He was joking, but he also wasn't when he made it a point to say, "You'll be able to outrun this thing." Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it was. It was interesting. I was watching that and saw saw that clip, and and I kind of like smirked at first but then i was like oh wait a minute like we actually do have to be serious about this right Mm -hmm. and it's it's just crazy because the world is changing very quickly and it's very exciting as you know someone who you know in our little corner of 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 the world here it's capacity you know selling software to support leaders to help you know be more efficient and drive more value etc etc it's 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 a lot of fun to watch all of this unfold but yes there are a lot of things we have to think about and the work you're doing is formalizing a lot of those discussions on what you have to think about getting into organizations being like look team like here's abc all the way through z on on what you have to have prepared written down you know understood by the team and 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 going through some of the um, scenarios that that could unfold there Well, I always go back to, um, you know, I don't know if you remember this um, or not, or if you've read about this, you may have, but uh, the Cosmopolitan um, Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas ended up actually adopting Rose, right? Their um, artificial intelligence bot concierge. I don't know if you've heard about this or not, Mm -mm. but it was really well done. And they really thought about the, it's fascinating because they thought about policies in a way that they didn't realize would benefit the organization down the road. But what happened is they had sound governance. And so policies naturally flowed out of that. And so it was fascinating because what they did is they actually stood up rows, right? Whenever you were in an elevator, she could you know recommend places to have dinner. When you were in the room, she could order your room service, yada, yada, yada. 
But what they did is they always put in safety checks. At Hmm. what point would you actually stop the automation? At what point um, were the handoffs to a human being? At what point could you almost like unplug the plug on this AI aspect, right? And introduce the human aspect. And so people go like, well, that's important, right? Because if you ask for a reservation and she can't make the reservation, then you want a human concierge to step in. Fair enough. But when the shooting happened, if you remember on the strip, Mm -hmm. what they were actually able to do was lock down the whole hotel. They were able to actually use the concierge driven by AI to communicate with everybody around what was happening. They were able to assure them that they would actually be safe. They were able to go ahead and take things like room service orders and communicate whether or not um, you know, you could actually have food, what type, I think they switched up. So they were like, we don't have anything except for like power bars and water, but you know, you're not going to starve. It's okay. And what they did is at one point they just turned off that system because what they didn't know is who was actually a threat on the strip. Could they actually hack into the system? What was really happening? Who was behind what's happening? And so to me, it was fascinating because they were able to take this thing and utilize it in different ways for different reasons. And the only reason they were able to do that is because everything wasn't so automated that you couldn't stop and interject a subflow in an ad hoc routine manner. And so Mm. I really, really like that um, example because I think it's perfect. It's a matter of having human technology partnership, understanding what's real, what's not, and still being very transparent about it so that it works for the business. Yeah, that's a really great anecdote. I think we're going to have to, I might have to uh, borrow that one as a good example of both the power of this technology the benefit and then also the sort of immediate thing you have to think about, you know, to your point of like kind of rolling it back or whatever, like you could see how, yes, that could go very wrong because you establish that trust with the guests, right? And then if the next interaction that happens, the, you know, is, is rerouted to a different sort of um, decision tree on the responses, like it, it, it could get very dark very quickly. Mm-hmm. When you go into an organization, are you typically going in before they start making a lot of investments in vendors and software or, or building it if they're going to build it themselves during or kind of after because, you know, they, they, they brought some tech in or like, oh, oh, crap, we've got an issue here. <laughs> yeah, it's all of the above, unfortunately, right? Because uh, a lot of times I get people who invest in the technology and they're halfway down the highway and then they're like, oh, wow, we forgot to fill up on gas oops, you know, let's pull off and no, we can't get to St. Louis faster than this because we didn't fill up the gas before we left type of thing. Um, And that's always really, really sad for me, but you know, there's always a mop-up project somewhere in the world. Um, Most of the time and in an ideal scenario is I will actually come up front into the organization and I will Hmm. usually stay in lockstep as technology is at least designed and if not starting to implement. And that's because in my world, You can document policies all day long, right? I mean, it's like I can write you binders of policies. We can put them up as PDFs on your intranet. And at the end of the day, you're going to have a bunch of PDFs on your SharePoint intranet, right? Right. So there's really no value in that. The value in policies comes in being very deliberate about them and then ensuring that the folks who need them most actually understand that they're there, that they're actually trained, that they've adopted them, they're ready to implement them. And that's really a change management exercise. 
And so what we're really doing is changing the culture, changing the people, helping them adopt policies and implement them and change the way that they think about technology. And so inevitably, it has to be sort of at the start, hopefully. Uh, but if not, then as they're starting to implement things, raising the flags and saying things like, no, you can't use your SMS channel in that way if you're doing X, Y, Z with your voice and if mm-hmm. your chatbot is doing something different, um, which happens a lot when we have a right. lot of siloed channels, obviously. Right. When you think about the future of support automation and how that will create a confluence with the future of, of digital policies, what's the what's the thing that is most on your mind? Um, the most, I think, in my mind is how do you embed policies so that they're seamless? Um, and so a lot of work that I've been doing when policy land the last year and a half to two has been around enabling folks inside of the organization to actually have the policies that are almost seamless to them. So I work with a lot of marketing teams, for example, mm-hmm. and it's great because marketing teams are always thinking about things, especially in regulated areas. Um, for example, I worked with a pharma that ended up saying like, okay, I have marketing teams in the EU, marketing teams in the US, marketing teams in Asia PAC. What do they need to know every time we do a campaign? Right. And it was this repetitive, redundant thing, right? It's almost like we're doing a campaign. We're going to use these channels. We're going to target these groups. Like, what do we need to pay attention to? And so we started to automate a lot of that, right? So it's all about like policies. This is what you need to think about. Here are the things you should always do, never do. And conversely, we started actually creating things for them, like checklists, if they were going to bring in a vendor to do these things. Mm -hmm. But from there, we were able to actually use things like automation. So now we know if you're logged into the network, who you are, right? Because you're actually on our network. We know who you are. We know what your role is, where you're located, what you're focused on. So no longer are we doing things like asking people, what project are you working on, right? Because if you're going to be rolling out a campaign in a pharma uh, capacity, you already need money. It's going to cost you more than 20 grand to do this project. So you've got money for this. It's related to a product that's coming out. Mm-hmm. or some kind of a service. And so what we're starting to do is automate a lot of data collection in the background and surfacing things to marketing teams just in time around policies mm-hmm. so that when they're ready to actually execute, the data is already available for them. They don't have to ask the questions. We're proactively servicing it to them. And in the back of the kind of, uh, you know, in the back of the box, if you will, we're starting to collect information and provide insights to folks that need them in, in the enterprise. So for example, if I'm a marketer in France, you know, I probably need to understand that GDPR is a thing for me if I'm going to be right. collecting data. I'm going to be needing to understand that if I'm actually dealing with children, especially that there's specific laws under GDPR that define children as being of different ages. So that's going to impact things in France versus Italy versus Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of creating that picture proactively for the marketer so they almost don't have to think about it very much. It's like, it's just a given. Yeah. Just like they open up Microsoft Word, they just know that that's where they're going to type. They have this data. They already know that's how they're going to execute their campaign. But it's really cool in the background to also alert IT, for example, that there's a new vendor coming in right from the outside who's going to be helping with this campaign because the marketer isn't doing it in-house. So we're going to need access to the network for a third-party vendor. We're alerting procurement that we're going to have a procurement going out and pooling what the marketer needs to adhere to and sending it off to procurement already, which is going to be the basis of this um, statement of work. We're basically alerting at the same time folks that are, for example, in the ground. Um, you know, if you're in France, for example, we're alerting the folks in Montreal um, and in Quebec that they might be able to repurpose a lot of the French collateral that the marketing team is creating for that part of Canada because it's French speaking. 
Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We're alerting budget, the budgeting and ops team and finance that we're starting to use this money and giving them the idea of the spend so we could project if more money is going to be needed, right? And it's cool because the marketer is just logging into their computer, not really thinking about anything. This is the world that they're living in. And so in my mind, it's having those policies that are proactively starting to understand what are humans doing? Where are decision points? What are the things that humans aren't thinking about to cue them into things? And then automating a lot of the stuff that is just so redundant and shouldn't be taking up brain space. Yeah. One of the things I always like to say is never underestimate the power of the concept of having one less thing to think about. And you know, the the sort of just-in-time information and contextual awareness and being able to easily get the information you need. And one of our, you know, we have a lot of clients in the mortgage industry. And one of the um, things that we do that's that's pretty popular is get instant access to the um, uh, GSE guide. So Fannie, Freddie, USDA, mm-hmm. all, all that stuff, yeah. like very important when you're when you're selling selling mortgages, um, getting that stuff in front of the, the LOs mm-hmm. in the fastest, most least friction way possible is like a major benefit to them. And it's similar to what you just sort of described there. And I think I'm I'm with you. One of the things that's really exciting about the future that we're all barreling towards here is I'm just going to get to focus on my best work. I'm going to get to focus on the things where I can drive the most value and not get either cornered into a situation where I make a mistake because I, you know, violate some tenant, whether mm-hmm. it's a, a, you know, law because we, we do something wrong with data or, or, you know, a gaffe just for, for whatever reason. Um, and, and, and just sort of unlocked to really do my best work. And that's, that's the future of work that mm-hmm. I am most excited to spend the rest of my career in. So this has been a great conversation. It has. Thanks. Yeah, no, this is really elucidating. And um, I think a great uh, change of pace from our usual episodes, because these are questions that support leaders need to be asking. These are conversations they need to be having. And if you're going to start bringing AI and automation into your organization, you have to think about this stuff. So I want to wrap up with the quick fire round that I still have not branded every every podcast I tell the guests we're, I'm gonna brand this and have a like a cute name for it and I still have not gotten there so we're just gonna call mm. it the quick fire round I'm gonna okay. fire off a few questions for you you answer the first thing that comes to mind okay what's the book that you most often recommend to people well there's two books that I always recommend but one of the ones that I'm focused on lately is um, a thousand brains by Jeff Hawkins okay right and I'm um, not sure if you heard of it or not but it's you know it's a great book it's all about how the brain works and then you know obviously from there we understand how technology could work um, including a lot of the AI very cool yeah a book I recommend a lot is the power of digital policy by Christina uh-huh. Plummer. thank you I appreciate that <laughs> yeah that, that was a that was a very natural shout out there um, <laughs> thanks <laughs> what's the best? productivity tip you've ever received that you've put into practice for yourself? I've turned on automatic uh, booking for my calendar um, through Microsoft, believe it or not. And this kind of goes hand in hand with that is I've actually just become a fan of Calendly, which allows Mm -hmm. people to self-schedule things. I know you use it as well. And so to me, that's the biggest thing, being able to have my time scheduled with some buffers in it and having somebody that's actually able to see my calendar. I don't have as many emails in my inbox and my days are flowing much smoother. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I I want to normalize sending people Calendly links, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's not impersonal. Like, we've all done the, I'm available, you know, the four email back and forth. Quick, quick tip for the audience. I'll share this in the show notes, but I recently made a series shortcut that um, if I tap the button for the series shortcut, I get a little menu to select either my 30 minute or my 60 minute calendar link. So if mm-hmm. I'm on my phone slacking or whatever, texting, emailing, whatever it is, I can quickly grab that without having to type, you know, calendly.com slash. Taking it to the next level. Oh yeah, yeah, getting, getting nerdy with it. If you could recommend one um, website, blog, Slack community, LinkedIn group, et cetera, for people to um, really like discuss some of the policy and, and preparedness issues that, that, that we've talked about today, uh, what would it be? Well, unfortunately, there really isn't a geek dumb fest going on around digital policy. It just doesn't sound sexy enough, quite frankly. But what I would actually uh, advise folks to do is to go into forums like XRSI's forum, which is all about things like what's happening in virtual reality coming up, because I would say that's the community that's talking the most about policies right now, the implications Mm. of decisions we're making. And it won't be directly related to things like consumer care, for example, in your call center. But you can see the types of policies we're talking about in that space and they're still very applicable. Right, right. And close us out here. If there's one person in the world of automation, AI, or maybe even the the, the stuff related to your work that we didn't cover today, if there's one person you could take out for coffee or cocktail, depending on the time of day and the vibe, um, who would it be? And it has to be in the field? Yeah. Or just, <laughs> okay, actually, there you go. There you go. Yeah. It, it, you, you get to take one per, run interesting person to pick their brain out for lunch, coffee, or cocktail. Who is it? Okay. Any interesting person. Any about, interesting you know what? person. I'm going to go back to Jeff Hawkins. I think I'm yeah. just going to geek out with him. Like, I mean, there's a lot of people out there. Um, and I thought about runners because your shirt says run, you know, and I'm a runner myself. So I'm all about running people. But I think in this instance, I think I'm going to have to default to Jeff and, uh, yeah, if it was somebody who was dead, it would be Howard Hughes, but mm. definitely uh, Jeff in this instance. Very Howard Hughes would definitely be somebody to to sit down. Cocktail, most likely with him. Um, yep. Well, Christina, this has been a wonderful conversation. Where can people find you and the work that you do? If you head over to thepowerofdigitalpolicy.com, it's the name of the book. It's the name of what I do, thepowerofdigitalpolicy.com. That'll direct you to everything else that I do, including some of the resources that you mentioned, like what kind of policies do I need to have? Yeah. And Christina is also great to follow on Twitter, kpodnar. She, she active user of the platform and lot, shares a lot of good stuff. Christina, Thanks. this has been wonderful. Thank you so very much for coming on the Support Automation Show. And I hope you have a spectacular weekend. Thanks. You too. And next time in St. Louis, I think my treat for lunch. Deal. The Support Automation Show is brought to you by Capacity. Visit capacity.com to find everything you need for automating support and business processes in one powerful platform. You can find this show by searching for support automation in your favorite podcast app. Please subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Capacity, thanks for listening.